Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. Hello and welcome to Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. You're joined, as always, by Melbourne journalist Michelle Andrews, that is me, and Zara McDonald. Hello. Hi. Coming up on today's show, Instagram toys with a future without likes, while Bachelor in Paradise shows us the difference between love and obsession. But first, Zara, how was your week? Good. It's always nice when you've got, what, a three-day week? Yeah. Um, so that was really good. I didn't get up to a lot, which was always nice too. That's unlike you. I feel very calm, actually. Mm. You look calm. Do I? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's a nice thing to say, I guess. I have to say, I read a book this week and I haven't read much this entire year, which I've been like really down on myself about, but it happens. Sometimes you just don't have time to read. And I read this book and it was, I'm not going to say the name of the book and people will understand why in a second, but I read about 700 pages of this book and it was the saddest fucking book I've ever read. Why are you not telling us the I'll name? I'll tell you in a second. Because as I was reading, <laughs> I was thinking, this is a great book. It's just so sad. So it has to end in the way that I hope that it ends. Otherwise, what was the point of me pushing through all of the sadness in all of the pages? Just a whole pit of depression, apparently. It ended so badly. I physically <laughs> threw the book across the room because it ended in exactly the way I didn't want it to end. And I don't want to say the name of the book because I think if I say the name of the book, me saying that I hated the ending might give away the ending. Ooh. But it's that funny idea. I think it's the first time that I've been that invested in a book and been that disappointed by the ending that I felt like I wasted my time. Well, this might be annoying for the listeners. Can you give us like the initials? Of, of course the title? it's annoying. <laughs> and then if anyone has read it and they're thinking, yeah, I think I've read this book too, give us the Okay, this is good. It's an acronym. Good. I know I'm gonna have to come out on Facebook or Instagram and actually say the name of the book, but I don't want to spoil it. The acronym or that the it's three words and it's T B H. And what's the topic? Oh my god. No, I can't because it will hundred percent We're playing twenty questions. Okay, it's about war. Oh, okay. I'm not going to read that anyway. Yeah. Well, you actually wouldn't have minded it. It was just too much. Because I like depressing things. (laughs) No, you don't like depressing things. But I think as I was reading it, you wouldn't have minded this story until it ended that badly. On a more positive note, (laughs) I would recommend 
Um, I put this in our recommendations newsletter this week, but I fucking, sorry, I'm swearing a lot today. I fucking loved this interview with Kira Knightley on awards chatter. I literally, okay. I saw that you put this in the newsletter and I didn't have the heart to tell you. I recommended this Did you? months ago. So when I was, I went into the Facebook group a couple of days ago and I said, what's the best podcast episode you've ever listened to? Not series. I just want a really good episode. And somebody recommended the awards chatter podcast, which I'd never listened to. And the episode with Kira Knightley is amazing. I can't believe you didn't listen. I okay. strongly <laughs> recommended that in an episode. This from someone who never listens to anything that I recommend. But my recommendations are quite robust and good. <laughs> As opposed to mine being, what's the opposite of robust? Yours are just a bit fickle. Banal. Just fickle sometimes. Sometimes your recommendations are great. Sometimes I'm like, what the fuck is that? Just a bit rogue. Okay, whatever. <laughs> this is the second time it's been recommended. So go people and listen. Yes. How was your week? It was a really good week. I got my eyebrows done. Yes. Which is unlike me, really. I think you've had your eyebrows tattooed before Which a couple of years ago. also unlike me. Also unlike you. I've never been one to really take an interest in cosmetic tattooing or procedures in general. But when we went away to Sydney, I forgot to bring my eyebrow pencil or it ran out. And I went through that week with just no eyebrows. And I was kind oh, of like... You had some eyebrows. <laughs> Pretty messy eyebrows, let's be real. And I think it was just my breaking point. I was like, I don't want to have to do my eyebrows every morning anymore to feel like a human being. I just want them to be done and not think about it. It's literally a time-saving thing. So I got them done on Monday and I know that they're like scabby right now and they're going through the healing phase, but it's already the best decision I've ever made. Yeah, they look very good. I'm really happy and with you're, them. And you are a big eyebrow person, like to the point when if anyone walks into the room <laughs> and they have good eyebrows... You will comment on them. Well, I'm a brows and lashes girl. I always comment on good lashes as well because I lack both in those departments. Well, the thing that makes me feel so awkward is I have the world's worst eyebrows. I never look after them. I have the world's worst eyelashes and you've never complimented <laughs> me on them. You have great skin. I always compliment you on your skin. You didn't even try, man. I don't mind. It keep, keeps me humble. Um, but yeah, apart from that, it was a really good week. I'm ecstatic at the moment because my uh, football team, Richmond, is winning. Uh, They're on a bit of a winning streak, three games in a row on the trot. I hear it's a very temperamental season. Oh, very temperamental. My sources tell me. That's a great word to describe it. It's an unusual start to the year. Not many teams, like no one's gone undefeated so far, which is pretty crazy when we're only six rounds in. Do I have a recommendation? I'm actually not sure. What have I been even listening to or You recommended the eyebrows. I recommend getting, to be honest, I do actually recommend getting your eyebrows done. If you've got the financial means to do it, it's expensive, I Mm. won't lie. But if you feel like you can't be bothered doing them every single morning and you'd prefer to just go out, get them done once and have it last for a year, do it. Because I was scared and I really felt like it could be a huge mistake because it's permanent or semi-permanent. Go to someone that you trust that is highly recommended and do it because I could not speak more highly of it. And I'm so excited for them to be fully healed and be faded a little bit. And I'm just happy about it in general. I'm so happy for you. <laughs> really? No, I'm I am. I'm sitting here like basking in my eyebrow bliss. They do look very good. <laughs> and Sarah. I'm looking forward to the progress shots. And when I say the progress <laughs> shots, I'm looking forward to seeing you every day for the next 100 days to tell you. I'm going to make a tab on my Instagram because lots of people have replied to my Instagram stories asking for eyebrow updates. So I'll just have like a saved Instagram story dedicated to my eyebrows. I think this is what Instagram was born for. (laughs) Speaking of Instagram, how's this segue? Yes, apparently Instagram likes are on the out. Well, so says the news cycle this week. So a tech researcher is what articles are calling her. It kind of sounds like she's a cross between a hacker and an investigative journalist. 
and a really good coder. Yeah. So her name's Jane Munchen Wong. We love a gal in tech. All about that. She has done this research and uncovered internally circulated screenshots from Instagram that show that they are currently considering removing likes as a visible platform feature. I found this really interesting. First and foremost, I love the way that she kind of stumbled across this and she was reading through Instagram's code and found this prototype in the code. Mm -hmm. So they're not, Instagram aren't testing this at the moment. They're not even sure. I doubt this will ever happen, but it is starting a very interesting conversation on how Instagram are going to move forward in a way that helps the mental health of young people. And I think that's what they're trying to do. So what it would look like apparently is if you uploaded a photo, nobody else could see how many people like that photo. They would only see that X person liked the photo plus all of these others, but Mm. there's no physical number on that photo. Mm -hmm. What's your initial gut reaction to this? My initial gut reaction depends a lot on what audience they're targeting this towards. So some articles said that this was a prototype for users under the age of 18. And if that's the case, fucking love it. I love the idea that teenagers don't have to go onto Instagram and have numbers ascribed to every single thing that they do. I feel like that can be really damaging when you're a young person and when you're not physically coped to deal with these type of things. If it's going to be rolled out across all of Instagram to adult users as well, I think it's a little bit OTT. I don't think it's necessary. I think if you're an adult, you should be able to differentiate self-worth and how many likes a certain photograph gets. I'm not sure I'm super on board with it. What do you think? I'm in so many camps about this and I keep kind of moving around. I think first and foremost, likes have been a quantifiable way to glean popularity on Instagram, right? And if Instagram has always been one massive popularity contest, which is essentially what it is, then what I'm wondering what its future will look like if that's taken away from it. Like, does Instagram have any relevance if it's not a popularity contest? And I know that seems like a very harsh assessment, but that was my first initial thought. Yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because this is a move on social media more broadly. Instagram's not the only one thinking of bringing these kinds of changes in. Twitter is about to do the same thing or is toying with the idea of doing the same thing. So just a month ago, they hinted at a redesign that would make it harder to see how many retweets and likes a respective post on Twitter got because they're trying to slow down that herd mentality and make the platform kinder. Well, that's the other thing that I kept thinking about is this idea of pack mentality online. And if you are more inclined to like something or on Twitter, retweet something, if you've seen that everybody else is doing it, 1000%, I think everybody plays into that by liking something because you actually see that everybody else does. And then, Mm. oh, what am I missing out on? What should I be consuming? Should I be taking this post a little bit more seriously? I think this would kill engagement. Yeah. See, it's interesting. I agree with the idea on Twitter because I feel like Twitter is a cesspit of nastiness, whereas Instagram's a fairly positive platform. I do worry about wrapping adults in cotton wool. Like this is how the world operates. Do we really need to take likes away from adults? With children and adolescents, I get it because they're coming through and they're vulnerable and they're young. With fully grown adults, do I need to see that it's just one person plus others who are liking a photo? I'm pretty sure I can deal with the number associated with that. But the more I think about it, I don't actually think it's about the physical number. I think as I agree with you in... I agree with you in that it's probably more important for people under the 18 because they do take that that physical number a little bit more literally. But for adults, I think if they take away the number, what that might do is, like I just said, I think it might kill engagement and I actually think it might change the content that we're putting up on the platform. Mm, agree. And I think it might make it less of a highlight reel. Well, that's their overall aim, right? So apparently if this prototype does go ahead, you will get a pop-up message when you log on to Instagram that says, we want your followers to focus on what you share, not how many likes your posts get. So they're kind of championing creativity on top of popularity. 
I also don't want to be a massive downer on this or overly cynical, but Instagram has had and continues to have a very pervasive, very wide reaching, a completely impactful influence on our lives, right? And I know that a hiding a like count or having a conversation about hiding a like count can sound completely frivolous, but I do think what it could do is take the consumerist aspect out of the platform. I think that it would become much more, if this ever happened, a platform for the people, not the famous. And then if that does happen, if it like kind of returns to its initial roots where it's just people sharing random photos of their life. Yeah, but doesn't that mean it's not making money anymore? Well, that's the thing. I'm interested in the unlikely but very curious hypothetical of what its purpose is if there's no money on the platform. Yeah, surely Instagram's owned by Facebook and therefore Mark Zuckerberg. They want to make money and making money from things means quantifying things. And it also means that the people that are using your platform are making money off your platform too. Absolutely. So making it less commercial, I, I can't see how it survives. Like I don't see how this is a a long-term game that could work. I don't think it is unless it's for younger people, which as I said, I'm totally behind that. But the future of the influencer would be very dire if they remove likes. Oh, completely dicey. The other thing that I wanted to touch on is I wondered if this was indicative of like a greater, more cultural change. I know that there was an article in The Atlantic this week. I'm not sure if you read it about how the Instagram aesthetic has died. The idea of the grid aesthetic where people aren't posting um, things to make the grid look as pretty anymore. And those things aren't engaging. And there was a really interesting quote by someone called Lindsay Eaton, who's the co-founder of the influencer marketing agency Estate 5, who said, ultimately, people are just looking for things they can relate to. And the pink wall and the avocado toast are just not what people are stopping at anymore. I wonder if Instagram are trying to find ways to keep up with the way we're changing our consumption of Instagram and content on Instagram in that we want more relatable content. I know it sounds also buzzy and buzzwordy, but I wonder if they're trying to do that. It just seems like kind of a misguided way to do it. Although I think they probably know that too. I don't think this is ever going to happen. I think they're just playing around. Do we think they also could have leaked this story or made it intentionally visible in the coding to make sure that something like this could come out because it is a bit of a good PR stunt for them if it is because lots of people are cynical about Facebook, lots of people are cynical about Instagram and how much money those platforms make and how much they're geared towards advertisers. To have a story like this leaked, which is very pro-mental health, pro-wellbeing, is a good look for them. Well, pro-compassion too. I think it's a great litmus test to see how people respond. Uh, I don't know anything about coding, so if people do know stuff about coding, I would love for <laughs> you to come into the Facebook group and tell me if this could have been hidden. I can guarantee that you are terrible with technology. Are you good at coding either? I'm better at technology than you are. Coding. Tell me coding. I mean, sure. We have no idea (laughs) if they could actually have hidden this or if there's no way to be able to hide a prototype in the coding of Instagram. Like, I don't know that answer. So if somebody does have that answer, please come into the Facebook group, Shameless Podcast Community. Plug. (laughs) Thank you, next bitch. And now it is time for the quick and dirty. As always, we will run you through five stories from the... Rough and tumble. I was going to try and say something else. <laughs> From the slippery and... Slopey. <laughs> that doesn't even make sense. We're bringing you five stories from the news cycle. Michelle, it's your turn this week. What have you got? All right, my first story. Adele and Simon Konecki reportedly split because they realised the romantic love was no longer there. That's from Elle magazine. And before you jump in with your comment, I just want to say how much I love the surname Simon Konecki. A great name. What a name. Konecki. Mm. I want to be Michelle Kinecki. Reminds me of Kinecki of Greece. Yeah, maybe I'll marry Simon Kinecki. He's I'm, single now. You're not. <laughs> yeah, I'm not single. That's all right. Uh, what are your thoughts? <laughs> Just a small hurdle. What are my thoughts? Uh, it's never nice to hear of a relationship breakdown, particularly around someone like Adele, who doesn't seem to kind of subscribe to the high-flying celebrity lifestyle that 
other celebrities do. She's very much withdrawn from the public eye. She likes to live that normal mum life. Well, she seems like a woman of the people. Yeah. And yeah. for that reason, it's it's always a bit sadder when they can't work it out. And there was a lot of commentary, though, that, that fans might get an album out of it, which is a very of course we're going to get an album out of it. We better. I mean, a silver lining of it all. I'm so excited. I did not realise how young Adele and Simon Konecki were, Konecki, 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 yeah. when they had their first baby. I think she was only 23 when she was pregnant. She's quite young. She's still quite young. Yeah. she's. Not, I don't think she's yet 30. I'm going to Google this while we say, talk about I it. I hope one of us have the answer. Because, you know, she had the album 21, then she had the album 27. She's 30. Yeah. Crazy. It's, a, it's very young. I hope we get an album. That'll be amazing. And I think they're amicable. I mean, I don't really look at split stories in a sad light. I guess it's because I've got parents who have split up and you can kind of see that if two people don't want to be together and they're breaking up, I'm not filled with remorse about that or Well, you'd rather pain. them be happy yes. as, as separate. And from all reports, there's not there's no animosity there. They just kind of drifted apart. Although I can't imagine them being the ones to bring the animosity public. Yeah. Give us an album. All right. My second story. <clears throat> I need to do a big breath in for this one. A sombre day of remembrance turns into a night to forget for thousands of weary revellers across Australia who flooded pubs and clubs for a very lengthy commemoration of Anzac Day. Daily Mail. Very lengthy headline there. <laughs> revellers. I also love that in, in a headline when you're trying to make it as concise as possible, you do not need to have pubs and clubs in there. Like you yeah, could just pick one. I know. This is a bit more of a serious story. It is. I put this in because I do want to know about your thoughts on Anzac Day and particularly Anzac Day on Instagram because there's a lot of sentiment there that people yesterday that I saw on my feed were like, I love Anzac Day, getting drunk, doing shots, going out and partying. And I was like, no, no, this isn't just a public holiday. This is a day of remembrance for people who died at war. Yeah, I think it's more the performative Instagram aspect that I worry about rather than people going out and hanging out with their friends on mm. a public holiday. Like, I just don't think it needs to be on social media. I, I felt myself kind of feeling a bit awkward um, tapping through Instagram stories where people were very obviously pissed mm. um, and not shy about it. What do you think? I, it's a hard one, isn't it? Um, I think it's very tone deaf. There was a great thread in the Facebook group of screenshots of different influencers just posting selfies or posting ads with hashtag lest we forget oh, or happy Anzac Day. I think that's very tone deaf and stupid. unintelligent, really. Well, it's like don't hijack that hashtag for commercial gain. Like yeah. that, that becomes not just tone deaf, that just becomes kind of almost inexcusable. And arrogant. Totally. I think as well, these uh, drunk galleries on Daily Mail must perform very well because Daily Mail run them on every possible occasion. So they do all the race days, Christmas Day, Boxing Day, any kind of party, St. Patrick's Day, my birthday, there's always one up there. It must be great content for them or great clicks coming through on those galleries. Which is kind of unfair. I, I don't like the idea that we're going to kind of get gotcha moments of people who are drunk because everybody's, I'm not going to say everybody, but a lot of people have been drunk in their life. Um, <laughs> you? Never. <laughs> but I do have to say it doesn't fill me with a lot of comfort or happiness seeing that stuff on Instagram on a day like Anzac Day. No, I agree. I think it's a little bit disrespectful and people probably just need to check themselves. Yeah, that's kind of it. My third story, the owner of Coachella is still giving his money to pro-gun, anti-LGBT, birther politicians. That is from Complex. And I wanted to put this in because I agree with a listener who said that we missed this point last week in our segment about Coachella. And I agree with that. So for anyone wondering, the owner of Coachella or the company that owns Coachella... 
He has donated $190,000 in the last few years to conservative groups and right-wing politicians, many of who are anti-abortion and anti-same-sex marriage. Isn't that shit really scary? Yeah. That those things can be very hidden or we just choose not to look for them. Mm. But I think it's important. I think it's important too. I don't even think there's much to say. I think that's really important just to know that if you're buying a ticket to Coachella, you might be supporting this man down the line. So... Not the best story in the world. My fourth story, you put this in, so I'm going to get your context on it because I don't know too much about it. Olivia Munn's bizarre vendetta against one of the least mean fashion sites on the internet from Slate. I think this has got to be my favourite story of the week or the one that's piqued my interest the most. So Olivia Munn is an actress for those who have watched Newsroom. Did you ever watch Newsroom? No, but I know of Olivia Munn because she was in other things as well. Okay, great. And she wrote a post on Twitter. It It was an essay. It was a small essay. Um, against the Fug Girls or Fug Girls. Mm. Forgive my pronunciation. It's again one of those things. I think it's Fug. It's supposed to be like Fug, but Fug. Yeah, Yeah, I just had one of those realisations that I'd never (laughs) said that word out loud and hopefully I never read it. (laughs) Your pronunciation of things often gets attention. (laughs) But it just means when you read them. Anyway, so she wrote a Twitter essay slamming the Fug Girls for having a critique of an outfit she wore a couple of days ago. Mm -hmm. And what's been most interesting to me in this story is how overwhelming the support for the Fug Girls has been. So for those who don't know who the Fug Girls are, I didn't either before this story. They seem to me to be some kind of cross between a much kinder version of Fashion Critical and maybe like Eleni Gossip, that Mm -hmm. kind of like smart, sassy celebrity critique Mm -hmm. that is certainly has its place. And the overwhelming response to Olivia Munn's essay was that she had completely missed the mark. She had punched down because they have like an eighth of the followers that she has. They're not some massive media conglomerate. They are two girls with about 100,000 followers on Twitter. They are basically two freelancers doing it for themselves. She then sent all her followers after them. And it felt like, according to the commentary around Moon's essay, that Moon had completely missed the point of fashion critique Mm. and that the two fug girls are so on their game about making sure they don't body shame, that their followers don't body shame, that it's got nothing to do with the personal, that it's got everything to do with the fashion. But it's opened up this very interesting conversation about whether the pendulum is swinging too far to the point where celebrities don't want any smart critique at all, that the internet just has to be this positive fairy flying place. Yeah, well, we often hear, even ourselves, that we're haters simply because we critique anyone for saying anything. I am curious, what were the two fug girls? Sorry, I can't even say that name without giggling. What were the comments that they made about Olivia Munn's fashion? It had nothing to do with Olivia herself. In fact, the one comment they made about her was that she had nice and shiny hair. It was just about how the jumpsuit was ugly. And Olivia actually sent her followers after them. So here's a quote from Olivia Munn's essay for a bit of context. Blogs like theirs have been around for a while with their snarkiness and hypocrisy on full display. And we've accepted it because as women, we've been conditioned to believe that being publicly chastised for our weight, our looks, or our choice in clothing is an acceptable part of our existence. We've been conditioned as women to feel that we must look and dress a certain way to be accepted. If there's anything we can glean from the last two years, it's that girls and women have been emotionally and physically targeted and abused for years and yet have to remain silent collectively because we all believe our voices, our pain and our existence only mattered with conditions attached. Very hyperbolic. Completely hyperbolic. Her points are valid, but in the context of the the fuck girls, completely missing the mark. It's got nothing to do with your body or... And, and I think as well, what's the point of fashion journalism if we can't critique clothing. Well, that's exactly the point in that 
as far as fashion critique goes, every piece of commentary I've read about this story over the last few hours has been, these are the nicest fashion critics on the internet. And if the nicest fashion critics on the internet are getting slammed by someone for being too mean, then have we completely lost sense of what their place is? Before we move on, what was the actual outfit that she was wearing? It was, okay, I'm going to, we'll leave it in the Facebook group as well, mm-hmm. but it was like a two-piece suit mm-hmm. and I have to say it wasn't great. Really? Can you it show me? Like it was like candy striped. It was a bit candy striped. Oh, I don't love it. No, exactly. But we should be able to say that for women in the public eye who wear clothes as a statement more often than not, we should be able to comment on what those clothes mean and sort of the reasons behind why people wear them. And if we don't have that, then we're just dumbing ourselves down. Agreed. My fifth and final story, Meghan Markle planning short maternity leave after baby Sussex, nine honey. Why did you put this in? I know, I forced you to. I don't care. I put it in because I think that Meghan Markle has already given birth to her baby. Ooh, what? A hundred percent, I reckon she's already given birth. I put it in because these are the only stories I can find around and I wanted to make it up. If she gave birth to her baby, why would Prince Harry have been at the Anzac Day event? Because they're trying to be decoys. If he didn't turn up, what would everybody say? Surely a new dad wouldn't care about being a decoy. Yes, they would. If they want those three, four, five days in the baby bubble with the baby, they would happily give up Prince Harry for three or four hours to go to an Anzac Day commemoration to have those four days. I will be delighted if in the time between us recording this and the episode going live, there's a photo of Megan just walking around. (laughs) Well, I'll be delighted. Still very pregnant. I will be delighted if by the time this episode goes live, the birth of the baby is announced and it's like backdated to well before (laughs) anyone had really she's disappeared completely i don't care she i do care i very much care and i think you should allow the listeners to care i'm allowing the listeners to care i just i'm voicing i think the at least 50 percent of them who like me do not care we should put a poll in the facebook group and ask do you care about Meghan markle's baby okay i only care in the context that it could have been born and we don't know and we'll name them team michelle and team zara and we won't tell anyone in the group what that means they have to listen it's only the podcast listeners we need to make it clear it's about Meghan markle (laughs) but i i just i think power to Meghan markle if she wants to keep this private and i just think oh power to Meghan markle i just don't care Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, there's really not much more I can do with this. <laughs> you shouldn't be allowed to do quick and dirty stories It wasn't even anymore. my quick and dirty. You just let me put those in. So stand up for yourself a bit more and kick my stories out if you hate them so much. Oh, That's all you got I for me. Next time. Yeah, apparently that is. <laughs> Hey guys, it's just Zara popping in very quickly before this segment because we just wanted to flag something. We actually recorded this next segment before last night's episode of Bachelor in Paradise had aired where much of Ivan's behavior did cross the line into what we consider emotional abuse. While we were hesitant to use that label in the segment prior to Sunday's episode airing, we feel confident in being able to label that behavior as it was. We just wanted to flag that now so you could understand that this was recorded before Sunday night's episode. Okay, now back to the show. It was a big week on Bachelor in Paradise and we are here to eat our hats. I feel like that's the saying of the month. Yeah. For those who missed it, contestant Ivan fell in love with contestant Neil over the course of about five days. In that week, that love became possessive and jealous and all-consuming, his chase of Tanil becoming too much too fast. It was uncomfortable to watch and started many conversations about the power dynamic of early relationships. Mitch, how do you feel or how did you feel watching this storyline play out on television this week? 
Okay, so I saw it in the Facebook group at first because I wasn't watching Bachelor in Paradise. After the first couple of episodes where I felt like it was too heavily edited, I kind of emotionally and physically checked out of BIP, which I'm going to call it for this. (laughs) Pardon? BIP. Batch in Para. (laughs) life short i'm just gonna use that acronym but i that saves you next to no time and makes you sound like well now i've wasted time because i've had to explain it to you exactly anyway it wasn't worth it was it anyway i checked out a bip and i was reading the threads on the facebook group one night and i saw there was a lot of commotion about ivan so i thought you know what i'm gonna use anzac day to catch up on everything i've missed so i watched about six episodes in one go and it was very tricky to watch. I was watching it with Mitch and he was physically recoiling at how Ivan was behaving on the show. I See, it's kind of hard because I think I watched it after the public backlash. I had maybe 24 to 48 hours to actually sit with it and process it. I maybe came to it with more of a bird's eye view than those people who are watching it at, in real time at the same time as Twitter, same time as Facebook. But there was a huge amount of outrage and a huge outpouring of anger about his behaviour. What did you think of it? Uh, I was very similar to you. So I watched it a little bit later as well. I caught up after the fact. And for those who haven't watched it yet or who don't live in Australia, Basically what happened is Tennille came onto the island and Ivan just basically said, I'm interested in her and she's mine um, and kind of didn't leave her alone for five days to the point where she couldn't get to know anybody else. He had laid his stake in her and was incredibly obsessive and possessive over her. I hated watching it. Yeah. I hated it more than I thought I would. I, before I had watched it, said to you, I'm nervous about doing a segment on this just because... I'm nervous about, or I do get nervous these days about making reality TV stars um, an example because we know that so much is cut out and so much context is cut out. But I think there's enough in this case for us to, to work off. Yeah, I agree. For those who don't watch Bachelor in Paradise or might be international listeners, here are some examples of things that he said. So at one point he gave the quote, Tennille is my territory to be marked. Jules needs to stop playing with my stuff. As if you would refer to a woman as your stuff. He then continued to punch a wall in his room when Jules took Tennille away for a chat. And I think it's important to actually outline the physicality of this. This is a six foot six, very well built, muscly man. This is a guy who is not small in stature. He's very physically imposing and intimidating. So to see him on this show talk about a woman who is very petite and little in this way was a very jarring, and I know people come at us for saying that word all the time, but it was a very jarring dynamic. Well, American Alex put it really well. He said, Ivan's a big guy. He's very intimidating. And for me, I think physical size plays a huge role in this. I think much of the Me Too movement has been trying to educate men on the fact that their physical size does matter. Um, And I think their size and their physicality is intimidating and is one small facet of what is already an uneven power dynamic. So for me, the physicality of Ivan was one of the first things that I noticed. The punching the wall bit was so scary to me that it was such white hot anger that he couldn't physically keep it inside his body. I think it's so unusual that sometimes with men and with women, sometimes obsession is so close to rage and fury that there's like such a fine line. It's like love, obsession, rage, and they all exist on this tiny, tiny spectrum for a certain kind of person. And, And that is a really scary type of person to me. Yeah, it was like one second he was mad madly in love and the next second he was furious over a really small inconsequential 
consensual thing that could be as small as having a conversation with another man. And this was, as you said, within a week of knowing her. And she wasn't she wasn't exactly reciprocating all of his advances. She was very physically trying to move herself away, emotionally trying to distance herself. So to see that play out in front of producers, in front of a whole cast team was very concerning. The fact that I think that maybe producers didn't step in here and hold him back or when he went into her bedroom, there was one scene for those who haven't watched it. He went into Danielle's bedroom while she was on the toilet in the bathroom and sat in the darkness waiting for her to come out and when she came out she screamed because she was scared or surprised or shocked to see him she got a fright for no one to step in was unusual to me I feel like that definitely crossed a line that you could see it playing out where he was making her extraordinarily uncomfortable I think it made more sense that producers didn't step in because I think I think it made it more realistic because I think when this stuff plays out in the real world it's subtle and it goes over a space in time and there's no one moment where you think that's too far. It's just a lot of little moments that that add up to something that makes you feel uncomfortable. I think the idea of someone laying claim on you or a woman backs any woman in the most impossible and uncomfortable corner. And I think it happens so much more than we ever talk about. In this case, Tennille suddenly and accidentally became the one he was interested in. And from there, nobody else got a look in. And I think it stripped her straight away of all her power and all her agency. And it was like her opinion was completely irrelevant in this scenario. Like she didn't matter. Her thoughts and her feelings did not matter. And this is the thing for me. I think you need to be really cautious of the man who becomes obsessed quickly because there's got to be a question mark over a guy's head when he becomes obsessed with you before he knows you. And that in my head, if he's becoming obsessed with Tennille before he's really known her for longer than a couple of days, he's simply obsessed with what he thinks she is and what she looks like and therefore she's objectified in his mind he has this obsession with an object of Tennille and that's why he talks about her in terms like stop playing with my stuff well completely and I think because he doesn't know her his obsession with her is actually so much more about his obsession with the power that he has over her or with everyone knowing that she is his like that's what it's about and I don't think that he can possibly hide behind the fact that he's flattering her or in love with her you can't be in love with someone if you don't know them I don't think there's many women in this world who haven't felt suffocated by some stretch um, or overwhelmed by the advances of somebody else. Mm. And I think it's more pronounced when the guy can hide behind the nice guy status. It's like a lose-lose scenario. The woman either cops it and is uncomfortable or she says something and is considered a bitch. Like I don't think there's a middle ground here. And I know that we've touched on this before, but it's the nice, the quote unquote nice guys that stress me out the most, the ones that treat their friends well, that are great to their families, who people would objectively say are nice. I think these are the guys that we should worry about because these are the the guys that think they can rely on reputation to carry them through rather than action. Yeah. Well, I do wonder if Ivan's behavior is symptomatic of the knight in shining armor narrative in that we've constantly sold this ideal to men in particular that you can get the woman you want if you fight enough for her, which is wrong. Like I, I really feel uncomfortable when men fight and fight and fight for this one person when that woman might not want you. Irrespective of what you do, she might not be that into you. But we've sold this message to men that they can go to the absolute nth degree to get the woman that they want and to have her 
be theirs. Well, it's him, it's him being romantic. Mm. And there is a there is room for the chase and there is room for fighting for what you want, but it's also fighting for what you want and listening to what the woman wants too. In all of these conversations at this entire week in Bachelor in Paradise, not once was the opinion of Tennille considered by Ivan because if it was, he would have backed away. She was dropping so many hints. And I think to me, I'm interested in his missing of the signs. Like he saw what he wanted to see in that relationship. Um, we saw all the signs. So how did he miss them? I think it comes straight back to ego and being blinded um, by yourself and saying only what you want to see. Yeah. And I mean, this wasn't the only example of this in BIP. Sorry, now I can't even say that acronym without laughing at myself. <laughs> can't take it seriously. In Bachelor in Paradise, we also had Rachel and Richie. Rachel... Uh, was obsessed with Richie and really wanted to be with him and showed that at every single point in the show and Richie rejected her. There was parallels there with that storyline and this storyline between Ivan and Tennille. The difference is the physicality, like I said at the beginning. Rachel never punched walls. She was never using really objectifying, possessive language to describe Richie. She was simply too keen. There's a difference between being overly keen and being possessive and obsessive about someone. This did remind me, and I'm curious to see if you've actually watched the episode, but I watched this week's episode of The Bold Type and there was a storyline in there that looked at bad dating behavior and how so many men like Alex in the bold type are unaware of how intimidating and coercive they can be in the dating space. And I do think it speaks to a broader problem where lots of guys don't actually realize what they're doing. Their their intentions might be good and they might be fine, but they don't realize how much pressure they're putting on the women that they're dating. No, and I, th- I think it's because it's only a conversation we've started to have in the last year or two. When that cat person story on The New Yorker went viral um, just over a year ago and then kind of the Aziz Ansari story broke through, I think the Alex storyline was very much an amalgamation of those two things. I think we're only starting to realize that it's not just consensual sex and rape. Like there's an entire gray spectrum in there that women have been dealing with for years and years and years and years and just copping. And we're only now starting to say, actually, there's a lot of times that I've just put my hand up and said, I'm just going to do this because I don't know how to say no. Mm. And in this case, you could see Tanil was actually trying to say no in many different things, in in many different scenarios, but it just wasn't going through because he wasn't taking her seriously because he was probably only thinking about his own intentions and those intentions were probably good. But at the end of the day, I think the more conversations we can have with men about the fact that their intentions can be good and they can be making a woman desperately uncomfortable in the process is really important. That was very well put. I know you've been my co-host for a very long time, but good job. In fairness, I think that about you a lot too. Do you want another compliment? I do want to say I don't think our hyperbole works very well here. I think there are a lot of headlines and there was a lot of commentary going on labeling Ivan as an abuser. And I don't think he's an abuser. I think that's very strong language and it's quite dangerous language in my opinion because my concern is is that when we – use hyperbolic language to describe these instances, we actually kind of push these men who have behaved badly into their own little corner and their own little band. For example, Mike from Married at First Sight, who we discussed as well, has kind of formed this weird misogynistic group with other reality stars who have behaved badly and treated women badly. And it's kind of like they're all on the toxic feminism bandwagon. 
I think we do ourselves and we do this cause a massive disservice when we fall down to the standard of critiquing these men's appearances in particular. For example, I really didn't appreciate headlines that pointed out Mike from Married at First Sight's hair tattoo, and I do not appreciate pointing out Ivan's tattoo on his back. I think it's completely distractionary. I think it's really reductive because what's the point? There's absolutely it's not no helpful. point discussing a man's appearance. I don't care if you think he's ugly. I don't care if you think his hair lines receding or his back tattoo is cringeworthy. That is reducing all of the good points you are making when you're talking about violence against women, bad dating ethics and men who make women uncomfortable intentionally. Well, well it's just simply not relevant. And I think when we, when it comes to these conversations, the reality is men are going to get uncomfortable about hearing this stuff because they automatically wonder if they've ever done anything wrong. And they automatically get defensive because most of us do get defensive when we're faced with, with the reality of our own actions. So it is important, exactly as you say, that, that those things aren't raised in the conversation. And it kind of terrifies me when they are because I feel like the whole conversation gets sort of... So Yeah, exactly. There's also a little bit more nuance to this than I think um, media outlets or Twitter commentary allow in that when Tennille was kind of breaking up with Ivan, which was so ironic because they were never together on her terms anyway, but she still had to have the breakup conversation. She said, I do like you and I enjoy spending time with you so much. And that's the shame of the entire scenario. These men aren't evil. Like they're not evil and the women don't hate them completely. It sits somewhere in between. And I think this is why the scenario is so common is because the woman probably does like spending time with this guy a little bit. He's just gone too hard, too fast and is too much. Well, she even went back and forth between wanting to spend more time with him and then pulling away and going back and forth and oscillating between the two. So I think when we come out and use language like he's an abuser or he's a future DV perpetrator, it just ruins the entire conversation because can you imagine someone like Ivan who never probably knew that he was behaving in a bad way in the dating sphere anyway hears all this commentary about him he would immediately just switch off and not even bother to take any of it on board because we're all speaking in such black and white terms he hasn't behaved well but he's not a shitty terrible person for what he's done if anything he needs to be more cognizant of how he's behaving and how that makes women in a more vulnerable position physically feel I wanted to finish with one of his quotes because it said a lot to me and it was when um, she said I kind of want a bit of space like I don't want to be all in I don't want to be none in I just want a bit of space and he responded by saying in a piece to camera what am I going to do treat her as if she's dead And to me, this obsession with absolutism of it being one way or another is exactly how conversations around toxic masculinity are hijacked. It's like reminiscent of when we ask men to just not do one thing and they say, oh, well, what can I do? And it's like, actually, there's so much more nuance to it than that. It's so much, uh, there's so many more layers to it than that. And it strips all of the meaning from the conversation. And that was just so curious to me, but also not at all surprising because it seems to be the way that a lot of these conversations from men are hijacked. Well, at the time of recording, the music video for Taylor Swift's first single in two years has been viewed by 85 million people. But popularity doesn't mean critical acclaim. And in the three days since Me has hit the charts, Swift's music has been both revered and reviled. Zara, first off, what did you think of the song? I love listening to a song for the first time and trying to guess whether I'm eventually going to fall in love with it because I can never fall in love with a song at the very first moment that I listened to it. But I knew I was listening to this thinking this is absolutely going to be stuck 
back in my head for the next three fucking months. It's such a tune. Yeah. It's so annoyingly catchy. Even the first time you and I listened to it together, we watched it in this little home office that you've got going on. We couldn't help but sing the last few times the choruses came around. It's just so catchy. It was very reminiscent to me of her 1989 and Red albums. Like she was really going back to those roots, which nobody was very surprised about. But it's been a long time since I've actually enjoyed her music. What was your favourite Taylor Swift album? Red. My favourite was 1989 for sure. Really? Yeah. I I think a lot of people would say that era was her best. But this clearly is her trying to pivot back to that like really young, innocent time. But it's more young than ever before. Like we've never seen her skew so innocent in the past. It's a love song, but it's very innocent, very sugary, very sweet. For example, reading out the line, spelling is fun halfway through the single. Yeah, it's like she's trying to go young, but maybe that she's trying to go to those young audiences that she's never been able to tap into before, like the young girls that are starting to grow up in their tweens. Yeah, well, it's interesting because people like Ariana Grande are skewing older and they're going sexier and more explicit with their lyrics. So maybe Taylor Swift has recognised that there's a whole young target market that isn't really being serviced by any major pop star right now. I don't think anybody is servicing them, so Mm. it, it does make sense to me. Also, you just look at the kind of, I wouldn't say failure of her reputation to a failure, is way too harsh but the flop of her reputation tour and how it lost a lot of people no I think you're right for saying that I read an article when we were researching for this segment that was in Forbes written by Brian Rioli and the headline was Taylor Swift is no longer relatable and her ticket sales prove it so reputation as an album only sold half the number of albums than 1989 did it was a flop compared to all of her previous work from 1989 she had huge singles like shake it off blank space bad blood when it comes to the Reputation album, there really wasn't that lineup of hit songs that people recognised. And I went to the concert for Reputation. I thought it was an amazing show. But the reason I thought it was an amazing show was because she didn't focus very heavily on the Reputation album. She really pulled in other songs and tracks from her repertoire and from her entire arsenal of albums over the years. Well, there was absolutely nothing endearing about that album, which I find most interesting. And Laura Snape wrote a good piece in The Guardian this week after the release of Me. And she said she turns 30 this year as she detailed in a recent essay for US Owl magazine, leading many to assume that she would take a more mature direction with her songwriting. But Me amplifies the happily uncool persona that endears her to her fans. And I really like this idea that still her fans are at the forefront of what she's doing. And she's had to kind of pivot herself back to what her roots were mm. in order to endear herself to them again because once we what's we keep, because what we keep saying is that that reputation tour and that reputation brand was like the least relatable least likable exactly and the thing that has got her through all of these years is being the kind of big sister dork yeah. and she lost that i do think it is a mistake though to look at this single in me and look at her lyrics with brian yuri from panic at the disco and think this is indicative of what the entire album will be like i read a really good story in rolling stone that actually made a, a parallel between taylor and michael jackson i did read this in that often their hit single that they used to catapult the album and launch the album album is nothing like the rest of the tracks that they then go on to launch. And it's deliberate in that way. This is a really good quote that I think actually explains it. It's a totally canonical Taylor lead single. But the question is, what does it really tell us about the album to come and the new music she's got up her sleeve? I do think she's intentionally going for this first single that throws us all off the scent that is really boppy, that is really pop tune-esque. 
I think she will then come out with more mature, more nuanced, hopefully. I, I mean, hopefully, because I am a massive Taylor fan, but I'm not sure this single was exactly what I was expecting with the rest of the album. Well, if we talk Pendulum, she's swung to the complete other side of it. So I, I do think she'll absolutely come back to the centre. I don't think she's an idiot. Laura Snape's called it a red herring that Taylor Swift often releases a single like Michael Jackson once did before the album's release that is very different to what the album was going to look like. Another mm. quote from that Rolling Stone piece from Reb Sheffield that I really like is that he looked at all of the songs she released before she released, you know, her albums. And Mm. he said, what these songs have in common is that they're musically far afield from their albums. They're big thematic statements addressing her public image. They talk about the celebrity Taylor rather than the personal one. They usually don't end up sounding much like the other songs on the album. Mm. I did think it was really interesting, this idea that the first song she releases from each album is dealing with celebrity Taylor and brand Taylor rather than feelings Taylor, um, which we saw very much with the Reputation Tour when it was all about her feuding with Kim Kardashian and, and, you know, Kanye West. Mm. And it was very much addressing her brand and the narrative around her brand. And it's like her infusing public discourse with like a narrative or a storyline for us to follow so that we go and buy the album, even if even if the album is a little bit different to what we expect. Yeah, the difference I see here, though, is that with songs like Shake It Off, they were both popular and critically acclaimed. This song, like her last single on the Reputation album, has been absolutely mauled by critics. And that was how Perth Now put it, and I totally agree, that this has been labelled in a really scathing review from Anna Gasser in Pitchfork as the worst and weakest aspect of Swift's work. So she described it as syrupy kit with an over-reliance on wordless vocal fillers. Oh, that's brutal. You should read that story. Syrupy kitsch is a great way to put it though. It is syrupy kitsch. Imagine saying worst and weakest aspect of your work. That is very brutal. Yeah, but Taylor Swift is also no idiot. I don't think she needed or wanted critical acclaim from this Mm. single because she absolutely could have released something after two years that she knew was going to be received well by the critics. I actually think she just needed mainstream fans back. Like she needed you and I back. Well, she's definitely got that because it did break a record. So this song smashed the all-time record among solo artists when it comes to most plays in an upload's first 24 hours. So this beat Ariana Grande's Thank You Next single, which got 55.4 million plays in the first 24 hours, by 10 million views. She got 65.2 million. I think this is all she wanted and needed. Like, yeah. I think she's got the result that she's absolutely been after. I I think that her public image and her physical public image is really important here too in how she positioned herself in the days before the single went live. Her, her hair was dyed half pink. Every time she was photographed in public, she was in kind of floral arrangements. Her cat was always around. Like, this stuff is so deliberate and so particular because she is trying to reposition herself in a way that does feel like we keep coming back to something that's more relatable to her fans, even though Taylor Swift is like the least relatable person on the planet. Yeah. So you think it's going to work? You think that this album will shoot her back into favour with the public? 1,000%. All you have to do is look at how when Taylor Swift puts her finger up or her hand up, she can demand the spotlight of the entire world. And, And for me, the last week has been an absolute masterclass in working out how relevant she still is and how she can demand our attention. She saturated the world when she decided to. She had Instagram filters, teasers on Instagram and Facebook, um, interviews on primetime US television, deals with radio stations, even locally in Australia. The minute she decided that she wanted the world's attention, she got it. And I think that's a pretty remarkable thing to be able to do in a world where, or in in a digital realm or an era where our attention is always split Mm. across platforms. Like you can't 
we don't congregate all in the same places anymore. Mm -hmm. And she was able to demand our attention. So I think because of that, she will absolutely make this album work. I think it will 1000% work how she wants it to. It is very well thought out. And it is interesting to look at Taylor Swift, the strategist, like we've discussed on this podcast before. She goes to the length of actually putting little clues in her music videos. Like she's already said that the name of the album and the next single are already in this music video. You just have to kind of like crack the codes that she's put in there. They're always packed full of meaning. I've got a theory. I think it might be kaleidoscope because she has used that word in previous singles before. There's also a kaleidoscope when Brandon Urie in that scene, there's one scene where he like flips open a love heart shaped window into his heart and it's a kaleidoscope of colors that then goes. I wonder if that, that would be a cool album title. Kaleidoscope. Kaleidoscope. (laughs) Jesus. It would be great. It would also make a lot of sense as to that absolute spectacle of a music video. I also wouldn't be surprised if it was something very kitsch and very simple, like love or lover or something that's Mm. super fluffy and super sugary because that's what she's trying to bring herself back to. True. I still feel like you've got more accurate um, guess out of this. I hope it's kaleidoscope and I hope this goes on record before she reveals it because if I'm right, I'll just bask in that knowledge forevermore. Yeah, but what? Nobody else on Twitter is saying that either. (laughs) No, I know I got that from a Twitter. (laughs) It was the most liked suggestion on her Twitter. You are such a fraud. I am a fraud. It's true. But hey, I'll just jump on that and say it was my own idea. All right. Well, watch this space, but I reckon that's all we've got time for for now. I think it is. Actually, before we move on, I wish that yellow suit was better fitting uh, in the music video. It was a tiny bit ill-fitting, but I didn't mind the lemony colour. Are we like the fug girls now? Is yeah. Taylor Swift <laughs> going to write a personal essay? Two bitches. Oh, God. Guys, thank you so, so much for listening to this episode of Shameless. We haven't said this in a really long time, but I think it's important. If you enjoy what we do and you want to support the show, please actually click subscribe on your podcast feed. That's the way that we get this podcast into more people's ears. The more subscribes we get, the higher we move up the Apple podcast charts and the more people can find us. So we'd so appreciate it if you could just click subscribe. Yes, please. That would be wonderful. A really quick note as well before we go. And when I say note, I mean a very big thank you from both of us um, for your response and your kindness to our interview with Natalie Fornasia last week. The outpouring of support from that podcast episode was was massive. Um, and how you guys rallied around Call Time on Melanoma was so wonderful to see. If you aren't following Call Time on Melanoma, you absolutely still can. They're not going anywhere. Yeah. And if you listen to us every Monday, but haven't listened to an In Conversation episode yet, can I highly, highly recommend you go back and listen to Natalie's story because it is super important and super close to our hearts for sure. So thank you for that. In the meantime, we will be back in your ears on Thursday for an episode we are very excited about, but we'll be on Instagram at Shameless Podcast. We'll be on Facebook at Shameless Podcast Community. I don't think we're anywhere else. I think that just about covers it. Yeah, I think it does. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Have a good day, guys. Hello, guys. Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. 
There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.